1: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. Today, our regular contributor, Bill Breich, brings us a fascinating story about the day British troops finally left American soil after the end of the Revolutionary War. Here's Bill.
0: The British Army held New York City for two years after Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown on October 19, 1781. The city's population had fallen below 10,000. Most of the residents were loyalist refugees from revolutionary terrorism. Accident, disaster, and the war had disrupted civic life. The Great Fire of September 21, 1776, had burned everything between Whitehall and Broad Streets, as far up Broadway as Rector Street and as far up Broadway as Beaver Street. Rents had risen 400% within the first year of occupation, the price of food and other goods and services 800%. The Provincial Assembly, City Council, and courts were dormant, although nothing indicates the politicians had stopped drawing their salaries. The city was governed by the British Army, and its government, in the absence of a free press, had become corrupt. Some New Yorkers made fortunes. Mr. Joshua Loring, who had pimped his blonde wife to General Sir William Howe to gain appointment as commissary of prisoners, became wealthy by selling provisions meant for prisoners of war on the black market. Others cloaked their sadism in the red coat. Captain William Cunningham, the Provo Marshal, commanded the jails and prison ships holding American prisoners of war. The Sons of Liberty had roughed him up before the war. He repaid the debt with interest. He enjoyed torturing people. According to Burroughs and Wallace's Gotham, Cunningham admitted to murdering as many as 2,000 American prisoners by starvation, hanging, or poisoning their flour rations with arsenic. At night, he swaggered through his domains, wearing the red coat with silver lace and epaulets, the cocked hat, the powdered wig, and the tall, glossy boots and spurs, with a whip in his hand, sending his prisoners to bed, shouting, Kennel, ye sons of b-! kennel, ye. B- On November 30th, 1782, the American and British delegates signed preliminary articles of peace. The first article reads, His Britannic Majesty acknowledges the said United States to be free and independent states. The articles were proclaimed in the king's name from the steps of the city hall on Wall Street. The loyalists were horrified. William Smith, a longtime resident merchant and fervent loyalist, wrote that the news shocks me as much as the loss of all I had in the world and my family with it. Thousands sold everything, furniture, houses, land, goods at fire sale prices and prepared to leave. A few committed suicide. A few were confident of their ability to survive any change of regime. James Riker recorded that a New Yorker said to his tailor, how does business go? Not very well, the tailor replied. My customers have all learned how to turn their own coats. Sir Guy Carleton commander-in-chief of His Majesty's forces in North America, began organizing his command's withdrawal from the city in April 1783. Concerned about personal reprisals against the Loyalists, he held out until every Tory who wanted to get out had left. In the meantime, his staff arranged transportation, settled accounts, paid bills, and auctioned off huge quantities of army surplus. The first 5,000 Loyalists left New York for Nova Scotia and New Brunswick on April 27, 1783. Thousands more followed. With them were numerous African-Americans, former slaves, freed by the British military government for their services in the King's armies. On September 3, 1783, Americans, British, French, and Spanish signed the Treaty of Paris. The news reached New York in early November. On November 21, 1783, Carlton ordered all British forces to withdraw from Long Island and upper Manhattan. That morning, George Washington met George Clinton, the governor of New York, at Tarrytown. They rode south through Yonkers to Harlem, where they stopped at a tavern near what is now Frederick Douglass Boulevard and 126th Street. The day chosen for the evacuation was Tuesday, November 25th. 1783 It dawned cold with a bitter northwest wind During the morning, a Mrs. day ran up the stars and stripes over her tavern and boarding house on Murray Street its first appearance in the city since September 1776 Captain Cunningham, resplendent in red coat and white wig pounded on the door Take in that flag, he roared The city is ours until noon He then tried to pull it down She belted him full in the face with her broomstick, bloodying his nose, and then dealt the captain such lusty blows as made the powder fly in clouds from his wig and forced him to beat a retreat. Washington had chosen General Henry Knox to command the American troops marching from McGowan's Pass in what is now Northeastern Central Park into the city. Knox had been a bookseller, a dumpy, bespectacled little man who had read every book in his stock. The war transformed his theoretical passion for artillery, after all, he'd read all the books about it, into practical experience. Behind the glasses and the big belly was the soul of a lion.
1: And you're listening to Bill Brake tell the story of the British troops finally leaving New York. The British had come to win. And my goodness, the battle inside this country, the Loyalists taking one side, that was one-third of the country siding with the crown, one-third with the patriots, and one-third hiding under their desks, hoping for it to pass over. And New York City, chaos, people fleeing. It was an exodus. The town had 27,000 people. At certain points, it got down to 8,000. When we come back, More of this remarkable story, the British finally leaving America once and for all. That story here on Our American Stories. (music) Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more.
6: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
5: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Evacuation Day, the now-forgotten holiday which celebrated the 25th of November in 1783. On that day, the British armies finally left the now-free United States after the Revolutionary War. When we last left off, Bill Brake was telling us how General Washington had chosen a bookseller turned general to take over as the British left our new country. Here's Bill to tell us more about General Henry Knox. In
0: 1775, in the dead of winter, he inspired continentals and militiamen to drag the cannons seized at Ticonderoga In the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress, to Albany and across the Berkshires to Washington's army at Boston, and he had marched with them. As a boy, I noticed a monument near my family's home in Latham, New York. It read, Through this place, past General Henry Knox in the winter of 1775 1776, to deliver to General George Washington at Cambridge a train of artillery from Fort Ticonderoga used to force the British Army to evacuate Boston. Knox set out early from McGowan's Pass, heading a column of some 800-foot dragoons and artillery. He paused at the Bowery and 3rd Avenue, near today's Cooper Union, until 1 p.m., chatting with the British officers commanding the Redcoats standing a block or so before him. The last British detachments now received orders to move. They moved down the Bowery and Chatham Street, picking up their outposts as they passed, and wheeling into Pearl Street, marched to the East River wards where they were rowed to the fleet. Knox followed the British down Chatham Street and then turned onto Broadway. He marched south to Capes Tavern, a little below Trinity Church, and formally took possession of New York City in the name of the United States. On receiving a message from Knox that he had done so, Washington swung into the saddle and rode downtown, Governor Clinton at his side. At the new jail, at the northeast corner of today's City Hall Park, Captain Cunningham paraded the Provo Guard for the last time. Accompanied by the hangman in his yellow jacket, Cunningham's command passed between a platoon of British troops which fell in behind them as they marched down Broadway. They and the city hall's main guard thus became the last enemy forces in history to occupy New York City. Washington rode down Pearl Street to Wall Street and then went on walled Broadway. At Capes Tavern, a group of citizens welcomed the commander-in-chief. An eyewitness said, "...the troops just leaving us were as if equipped for show." and with their scarlet uniforms and burnished arms made a brilliant display. The troops that marched in, on the contrary, were ill-clad and weather-beaten and made a forlorn appearance. But then they were our troops, and as I looked at them and thought upon all they had done for us, my heart and eyes were full, and I admired and gloried in them the more because they were weather-beaten and forlorn." The British had left the Union flag flying over Fort George on the battery. The halyards, the lines for raising and lowering the flag, were gone. The banner had been nailed to the staff. And the pole was greased, heel to truck, to prevent or hinder the removal of the emblem of royalty and the raising of the stars and stripes. The grease rebuffed all efforts to climb the staff. In the crowd was Captain John Van Arsdale, a New Yorker, Revolutionary soldier and peacetime sailor. Recalling Peter Goulet's hardware store about 10 minutes away in Hanover Square, he sprinted across town and liberated a saw, hatchet, cleats, rope, and nails. He began nailing the cleats into the greasy pole. He climbed a little, drove in more cleats, and climbed farther. Bit by bit, he ascended the pole. He reached the top. He ripped down the British flag and flung it to the cheering crowd. Then he attached new halyards and scrambled down the pole as the stars and stripes ran up it. General Knox's field guns began a 13-gun salute. As the colors went up and the cannon roared, the British weighed anchor and made for the open sea. That night, Washington and his officers met with General Clinton in France's tavern at Broad and Pearl Street for a feast of reason and a flow of soul. They offered 13 toasts to allies, friends, comrades living and dead, their hopes for their new country, and certain immutable principles. The next nine days were marked by what one observer called good humor, hilarity, and mirth. Thus, at Governor Clinton's dinner for the French ambassador on Tuesday, December 2nd, 1783, his 120 guests consumed 135 bottles of Madeira, Described as, it may not look like much, but it can fell an elephant, 36 bottles of port, 60 bottles of beer, and 30 bowls of punch, while breaking 60 wine glasses and eight cut glass decanters. On Thursday, December 4th, Washington breakfasted with his officers in the long room on the second floor of France's tavern. Then the commander-in-chief rose to his feet, and there was silence. Most intelligent warriors who have written of their experiences, from Xenophon to William Manchester, admit that they fought not for king, flag, or country, but for the guys they were with. The revolutionaries were no exception. Washington said, With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your later days may be as prosperous and happy As your former ones have been glorious and honorable. Then he could say no more. General Knox stepped forward, embraced him, and both men wept. At last, composure regained, the commander in chief went down the stairs, popped on his cocked hat, and strode into Pearl Street. The infantryman snapped to present arms. He acknowledged the salute. Then he walked west orders were barked. The column moved out behind him. Near the battery at the foot of Whitehall Street, a barge waited to take him to Paulus Hook on the New Jersey shore. From there, he traveled to Philadelphia, where he resigned his commission to Congress and returned to private life. November 25th was celebrated as evacuation day in New York for more than a century. But Evacuation Day was gradually overwhelmed by R.H. Macy's aggressive promotion of Thanksgiving, a rival end-of-November holiday. Around the beginning of the First World War, it faded away. Yet in 1983, through the support of Manhattan Borough President Andrew Stein, New York City commemorated the bicentennial of the evacuation. A parade marched down Broadway to the Battery, featuring hundreds of reenactors in the uniforms of the British and Continental Forces. The British Union flag was flying from the staff of Castle Clinton. Then Harry Van Arsdale, the Union leader and direct descendant of Captain Van Arsdale, stepped forward to lower the British colors, which were presented to Her Majesty's Consul General, who kissed them. Van Arsdale clipped the stars and stripes to the lanyards and ran it up the pole. A dozen brass loader cannon along the battery began firing a salute, and the crowd cheered wildly. On August 16th, 1824, Marie-Joseph Paul Yves Roche-Gilbert de Motier, Marquis de Lafayette, the last living general of the Revolution, the hero of two worlds, landed at the Battery to begin his tour of the United States. Tens of thousands were awaiting him. Among them was a company of veterans of the Revolution, The Marquis insisted on inspecting them and slowly walked down the line, greeting and shaking hands with each man. Lafayette took a second look at the last man, then he smiled. Van Arsdale, he said, I remember you. Then the captain who had ascended the flagpole and the Marquis, who had been a major general at
1: 19, embraced And we thank Bill Bright for that beautiful storytelling. And my goodness, well, that's why we do what we do here at Our American Stories. Uh, What we've lived through as a country, what George Washington did. Evacuation Day, the day the British troops finally leave America in 1783. Put that on your celebration calendar, folks. What a great day, especially if you're New Yorkers. This is Our American Stories. That's better, H-E-L-P.com.
6: I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals,